It is an honor uh, today to be asked to have an opportunity to give a message again. And uh, I will use my notes a little bit more because I didn't have really time to prepare slides, which is good because I know Scott does a good job of those and I, by comparison, I would look pretty bad anyway. But we are going to go in an awful lot to the Word today, so have your Bibles ready. And I'll try to repeat myself as much as possible to make sure we get the, re- the verses. What I might suggest is that since we're going to look at a fair bit of Scripture today, that you maybe just write down the verses that I'm going to share with you and then let God speak to you later uh, individually as you, um, as you take a look at those in more detail. I'll also tell you something else. This is always fascinates me, the way God works. This morning, um, I attended a life enrichment class, and uh, Walt Ortiz did a phenomenal job of leading that this morning. Thank you, Walt. Uh, Just incredible. But it again blows me away that God again confirms this one I'm supposed to talk about, because guess what Walt covered this morning? An awful lot of what I'll go into in a little bit more detail this morning. So he just confirmed that. Now, you guys also know this, that when I prepare for a message and I'm asked uh, to give a message, the first thing I do is just simply go to my knees And say, Father, I'm humbled. So what is it you want your servant to say? What do you have to say about this? And then I just watch. And I look for the evidence of his answer. Because I believe that God works in all the minutia of our lives. There's nothing, there's no accidents, there's no coincidences. So I just watch. In fact, he tells us to ask and then seek and knock. We're supposed to look for the evidence of his answer. And it came to me this past Friday morning at men's group. So we're at the egg and I. And it became very clear in our discussion uh, what my message was supposed to be today. So just a couple days ago. And incidentally, guys, uh, you're missing out. If you are not uh, able to come Friday mornings at 6.30 down at the Egg and I, it really is an incredible time in the Word. So that is what prompted the message today. Now, you remember a couple weeks ago, I gave a message. And the topic of it was, and I'm not expecting you to remember this. I'm not sure if it's on the website yet or not. But it was uh, bewitched and bewildered, question mark. Today I'm going to give you the other side of the coin. And the question is, are we listening to God? That's the question for today. And you're starting to see that it's two sides of the same coin. So that's what I want to do today. Now to start this off, what I want to do is actually go to John chapter 6. And I'm going to do a a bit of a review, try to do this justice, a a bit of a review of John chapter 6. So open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. And it's kind of interesting because if you remember... This is where um, Jesus does a pretty miraculous thing that's actually recorded in all four Gospels. But he, uh, this is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, we know it's more than 5,000, right? Because back in those days, they only counted men. Uh, nowadays, we really do the opposite. Uh, but so, we, uh, so he's only counting men. So there was thousands upon thousands of people here that Jesus miraculously uh, served and fed. And it was kind of interesting because when Jesus did this, they actually saw the miracle. It, they, it was actually happening in front of them. I want you to imagine that you were there. And if you remember, Jesus started off with not very much food. What did he start with? Five little barley loaves and a couple of fish. Thousands of people sitting there. He says, now guys, get together in groups. And people started handing out food. And the food just keeps coming. They can see it multiplying in front of them. It never runs out. And in fact, if you remember, there was so much food at the end of it, the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of food. None of God's provision was wasted. Jesus says, don't waste it. So it's amazing. They saw the miracle happen in front of their very eyes. And it's important to remember that when we keep going through the book of uh, uh, chapter 6 of John. So, so here's what happens. So Jesus um, feeds the 5,000. Right? And then we go down to the end of uh, to verse 14. 
And it says, the people saw, remember I said, the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did. They saw it. And so they began to say, isn't it amazing how we'll take, start taking things into our own hands. Surely, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. And so Jesus, verse 15, knowing that they intended to come and take him, make him king by force, he kind of just slides away and goes off to the mountain by himself. Now in the meantime, keep going through John here, the disciples, uh, they recognize uh, Jesus is gone, and then they're kind of like done their stuff here, so we need to move on, and they're kind of heading for Capernaum, so they go down, they get in a boat, and the people see them get in the boat, and they head across uh, the lake, they head across the Sea of Galilee, which is about, about seven miles wide, roughly, and the Bible's very specific. It says when they were about three to three and a half miles uh, from shore, which is about right, halfway, they said an America, a miracle happened, and they were terrified. Because Jesus came walking towards them on the water. And it's stormy. Stormy, choppy, wavy water. Jesus comes walking towards them. Right? And in verse 20, he says, he says to them, don't be afraid. It's I. Don't be afraid. And he said, then they're willing to take him into the boat. And it says immediately, poof, the boat's on the other side of the, of the lake. It's done. It's immediately there. Now, it's interesting. The next day, now the crowd's just been fed. They're nice and full. The crowd's been fed. They look out. The disciples are gone. Um, they notice that Jesus didn't get in the boat, but they know that Jesus is gone. And so they decided, hey, we've got to get over and try to find this guy, right? We've got to go find Jesus. So they see a couple boats. They all get in the boats, and they go across the lake. And Jesus now, they say, they, here's, they ask this interesting question. Interesting question. They said in verse uh, 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? Right? They didn't see him go. When did you get here? And here's Jesus' reply. He didn't answer the question. He says, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, and not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your full. You had your fill. They wanted more, right, of the same. He says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to the eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him the Father has placed his seal of approval. And so they asked him, so what do we got to do to do the work that God requires? And Jesus says this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And of course, they don't ask him more about that. They actually ask a different question. What miraculous sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? Did you not just see what happened the day before? Right? He says, give us a miraculous sign. Now, here's what they said. He says, what will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it's written. He says, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So he's saying, hey, Moses did this. Jesus, what are you going to do? And Jesus says, Moses didn't do it, guys. That was your father in heaven who gave you that. But he says, but the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, well, sir, from now on, give us this bread. See, again, me, 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 mine, 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 right? Um, give us this bread to eat. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Um, he says, I'm the bread of life. Down to verse 35. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and you still don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Ooh, it's going to get tough now. That I shall lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone 
looks to the Son and believes in him, shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That should have prompted a lot of great questions. But what did they do? Look at the next verse, 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Again, instead of asking and saying, Jesus, um, I believe you're who you are, tell me more. Instead of that, they grumble and complain. Well, hold on now, let's start to argue. Well, isn't this Jesus the son of Mary and Joseph who we know? Doesn't he live kind of in the area? Don't, isn't that the same Jesus? What's he mean he's coming down from heaven? What does he mean? And then they said, uh, and then he said, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. It's funny how Jesus knows the mind and the heart. He knows what's going on. He says, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then if you remember, he then goes on and says some things that uh, disgust them, that terrify them, that annoy them, that infuriates them. He says, in essence, um, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, uh, you can't be any part of me or the Father or heaven. Now, to the Jews, that's detestable. You do not drink blood. You do not eat the flesh of a human being. And so what did they start to do again? Grumble. Instead of asking Jesus, Lord, there's something to this, tell me more. The first response is, well, here's what I think. Well, here's how I feel. Don't we always do that? I go back to, well, here's what I think, here's what I feel, here's what I believe, here's what I know, instead of going back to Jesus and asking. So, Jesus is about to get in their face. So here's what happens. This is interesting. Verse um, 61. Aware that his disciples... His disciples are grumbling about this. Jesus said to them, now his disciples, there's a lot of people following Jesus. He's he's talking about all the people who are following Jesus at this point, more than just the twelve. He said, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? And they're going to, by the way. The Spirit gives life, the, the, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life, but there's some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning which of them did not believe, And who would betray him and who would not? He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the fathers enabled him. And here's what happened. Quite a number of the disciples hitched up their robes, took their ball and went home. They they left. And one of the things I've learned is that often when Jesus speaks, you either leave or you listen. Isn't that always the case? There's a choice to be made, and it's a black and white choice. The thing that's kind of disturbing, and, and you know, we'd, we'd like to think that Jesus went back and tried to persuade him. He didn't. He let him go. So when Jesus speaks, it demands a choice. Some people leave, some people stay. The majority of the people actually left. And then Jesus turned to his closest people, the twelve. If you still got your Bible open in John 6, and he said, uh, essentially, what about you guys? You don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter, the the speaker of the group, he said, where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? You are the Holy One of God. We've got no place else to go. So that was his decision. But most of the people left. The fact is, brothers and sisters, the natural human nature of us is to live in disobedience. Is it not? Our natural tendency is to grumble and say, well, I think this. Well, I feel this. Well, I want this. And for the most part, that represents, I think, a lot of the church today. 
It represents. That's where we are. So this message was kind of interesting. Jesus was a radical. Uh, that always, he always made statements that had huge impact and it always demanded a decision. Now, here's what I've learned. Uh, we must choose to listen to God if we expect to be assured of being his children. Now, that's going to be interesting. Because that kind of goes a little bit, if you first think of it, maybe that goes against what I talked about two weeks ago. Stay tuned, it does not. Um, it's kind of interesting. There's a key point here that I have learned about Scripture. I really can't understand it on my own. And in fact, doing or obeying will always come before knowing. Let me say that again. Doing and obeying will always come before knowing. I can't know and then say, well, I'll obey. Think of it, think of it as a surgery. Do I really know the success of a surgery before I wake up? No. I have to step forward and trust that when the doctors, like Benton, puts me to sleep, the first off, he is going to wake me up. But secondly, that that surgery is going to be successful. But I really don't know until I obey and submit and go through it. And so it is with the Word. We really cannot understand God until we first do what He tells us and submit and obey Him. Um, so anyone who wants to do the will of God, this is in John seven seventeen. John seven seventeen. Jesus says this. He says, anyone who wants to do the will of God will know then whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. So what did he say first? I've got to want to do the will of God before I can really understand whether his teaching comes from God or not. Obedience comes before understanding, folks. Comes before understanding. The Jews, when they were grumbling before, they grumbled because they already had their understanding. And they're making their choices based on what they thought they understood, right? So obedience comes before understanding. You do not, um, you just really cannot make the decision to say, I'm going to know God first and then I'll obey. Biblical doctrine will always be harder to understand than the commands that he gives us. In John 8, Jesus said, he said, you are truly my disciples if you abide in me. Now you guys, we've talked about abiding a lot. What does abide really mean? It means I submit my life, my will, everything to, to the Lord Jesus. And I am with him 24-7. He is my Lord. I listen to him and I obey him. That's abiding. And what he says is, he says, you are my disciples if you abide in me. And he says, and then, as Walt said this morning, then you will know the truth. And the truth will do what? Set you free. Set you free from untruth. Set you free from the power of sinning. And then Jesus said again, in, in John chapter 14 and 16, he says, actually, if you abide, he says, then the Holy Spirit, if you first abide, listen to me, then the Holy Spirit will guide you into the truth about all things. Really? But first, you have to abide. I can't expect the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to me if I've said, Jesus, I'll live life on my own terms. Does that make sense? Fair enough? So we cannot hope to understand God in his ways apart from a sincere heart of submission and obedience. Always. Two weeks ago, I shared with you in the message that I, told, that I said I want to obey God for two main reasons. I only shared two at that point. I said, first off, life is better. I've learned that life is better when I submit to him and do what he tells me to do. <laughs> I have to tell you, I resisted that for years. But I have learned that life is better. When I submit and do what he tells me to do. Am I, am I perfect at that? Those of you who know me say, heck no, Rockwell is not good at that. Uh, but I am doing my best to submit because life is better. And I said there's another reason. And the, the other reason is that 
I simply do this because of the gratitude of what he did for me. He took me from death to life. He took me from my ignorance and my what I thought I knew to at least some level of knowing and understanding as I submitted to him. I am so grateful to my Lord that I want to obey him. I don't do it all that well, but that is my heart's desire. And those of you who are closest to me know that's my heart's desire. I want to do what he commands of me. Everything that he commands of me, that's my heart's desire. I'm trying to do that. Maybe it's getting easier as I get older. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But I'm trying my best to do that. But there's, I said, there's actually four reasons. So I shared those two with you first. The next two actually trump the first two. There's a third reason. The third reason that I obey him is because his word promises me that the more I obey him, the more he will reveal himself and his ways to me. So one of the reasons I want to obey is because his ways are best. And I want to know more about him and his ways. So that's the third reason. I want to learn more about him and his ways because his ways are always best. There's a fourth reason, and this is the biggest one for me. It's real simple. Because he commands I obey him. The fourth reason I obey him, because he told me to. And he hasn't taken away my free will, I have the choice. But he told me to do it. So if you think that you can understand God without needing to obey him, you probably deceive yourself. I have learned that God will not reveal himself and his ways to those who have absolutely no intention of doing what he says. So I can't just say I'm saved, now I get to live life according to my terms. I got the fire insurance, nothing changes. Uh -uh, I've not learned that at all. In fact, I can't find it anywhere in scripture. So, I want to ask you a question. How many people do you know, this is rhetorical, how many people do you know, personally, that you believe truly have a heart to obey all of just the New Testament commands that Jesus has given. Think about that for a minute. How many people do you know that truly have a heart to obey all the New Testament commands that Jesus has given? I'm going to share some things with you that might, uh, might disturb you a little bit. And I'm preaching to myself here. I think today that the disregard for God's commandments is so wide and so deep that we don't even give it a thought. We just think, I'm saved, I go to church, I'm all set. In my observations, Christians and their behavior are far more influenced by culture and the world than they are by doctrine or by the, by the Bible. Stop and think of it. What do we want most for our life? And what do we want most for our kids? Success, wealth, power, influence. That's what we really want if you stop and think of it. And I'm preaching to myself here, folks. I'm a little bit embarrassed and ashamed because I'm in that boat far too often. I get impacted by the world. See, we are very highly market conscious as Christians, are we not? Think of the term, we shop for churches. I look for a church that believes what I want to believe, has what I want to have, does what I want to do. And if I don't like that particular church because it doesn't quite fit with my paradigm or what I want, I'll go find another. I'll shop for a new church. And it gets very tempting to do that. I've been tempted to do that many times. Um, so it's interesting how we do that. We are very market conscious. We're very culture focused. In Luke 6, 46, Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Disobedience, I find, is everywhere. It's in me. There's likely not a single biblical command that a church member can't ignore. Probably hitting home for some folks, right? We men ignore the requirements 
for biblical leadership of our families because it's not culturally relevant. Wives don't have to obey their husbands. That's not culturally relevant. Our kids can choose to live together with somebody else if they want to. That's culturally relevant. We use the culture far more than we use the Bible to determine our choices. And I'm talking about the church, folks. Are we not? Probably at no time in history has the church had such a widespread neglect of God's commandments and God's expectations. And again, I'm speaking to myself here, folks. Don't think that I am speaking to you. This message was first and foremost for me. I'm going to share with you some stuff that God kind of revealed to me. We don't discipline church members anymore in churches. We don't do it. You may think, oh, no, yeah, we do do that. Let me ask you something. I'm going to give you a scenario. Imagine Carrie and I are much younger. And you start to notice that we're pregnant. It starts to kind of show a little bit. And then all of a sudden, one week, we're not. We didn't make a big deal about it. We just went quietly, discreetly, and we took care of it. Do you think the church would discipline us? Here's the question. If the church will not discipline me for the murder of a life that God created, for what sin will it discipline me? Think of that. How much do we have to disregard God's commands and laws before we as a church start to wonder if we're still part of the body of Christ? This is a heavy topic, folks. This is the flip side of what I talked about two weeks ago. But God really hit me with this one. Obedience is not an option. He gives us this free will, but the choice is black and white. It really is. So, um, I want to see if I want to ask another question or not. I, I won't, because some of the questions are also, you get the point. They were just equally hard-hitting. But I have found today that in the church, truth is relative. It's relative. How does it fit against culture? Now, here's this. I did some research as part of this message, and this was kind of disturbing to me. George Barna, you guys know George Barna, known for doing an awful lot of biblical research. He did a survey of born-again teenagers. Not just church-going teenagers. Teenagers who believe that they are born again. He did a survey. Only 9% of those born-again teenagers, this is our next generation of church leadership folks, 9% of them, less than 1 in 10, believe that biblical truth is absolute. It's relative. And we look at how our family members choose to live their lives. I really don't think we think a lot of biblical commands. In my family, that's been the case. Most fathers, including me, we respond as if we're powerless to do anything about it in our families. And I will tell you, God is working on me on this. I'm trying to be a better dad to my kids and a better husband to my wife because I want to do a better job of leading my family. Not that I deserve to or am qualified to, but I want to humbly understand from God how do I better lead my family because I have not done it well. I want to share with you something. This is the part that really God really hit me with. Um, Many of you know that I served as an elder of this church for several years. I want to tell you now I was not qualified. Those of you who know me and my family, if you read Titus and Timothy and the requirements for an elder, I am not qualified. So I owe you an apology for that uh, because I shouldn't have accepted the position. But I will tell you this too. uh, Today, I'm not qualified. And I want to be better at this. Here's why. Not because I want to be an elder again, but because I want to be a better servant that God deserves. 
So I'm doing my best, prayerfully, submitted on my knees before the Father, say, Father, help me do a better job of leading and influencing my family so that I will have believing children, so that I will have a godly wife and that I will be a godly husband. Father, help me to do that because that's what you deserve and that's what you command me to do. Does that make sense? So I'm on a journey here. And I'm not in bondage to it. This is a joyful journey because the cool thing is, not only is God revealing more things about me and myself that are hurtful sometimes, but he's revealing more about him. That's what I want. As Walt said this morning, he, again, he just meshed right like this with this message this morning. When people see us, they should see Jesus. They shouldn't see a Bob who's trying to be better. They should see a person who's exhibiting the fruits of the Holy Spirit because I'm submitted to the Holy Spirit. They should look to us, all of us, and see love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness and patience and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Not because of one iota of anything that I've done, but because I've submitted to the one who will produce it in me, and I just get to bear it. Does that make sense? And I want to do that because he commands me to it, and because of the four reasons, really the four reasons I just shared with you. So I'm on a journey, and I hope the rest of you are on that journey with me. That's independent, by the way, of a specific senior pastor or anything else. I'm doing that journey with you guys, and you are helping me, and you're probably not even realizing it. I'm exactly where God wants me to be. And it's an incredible joy because he's got me on a journey that includes you guys. And you have spoken to me so many times. Walt this morning, he spoke to me this morning. He reaffirmed what the good Lord was sharing with me. God spoke powerfully through Walt to me this morning. And so I'm grateful to that. Okay, move on. So I already mentioned to you there's probably not a single biblical command that a member of the church can't ignore. And in fact, we feel it's completely okay to have disunity in the church. It's okay not to agree on the word of God. Uh, is that what God would say? I'm reminded, I went to Psalm 106, verse 35 and 36. Psalm 105, uh, sorry, Psalm 106, verse 35 and 36. And here's how he described Israel. He, he kind of um, blasted Israel a little bit. See if this doesn't resonate with us. Here's what he said. Psalm 106, 35 and 36. But they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols which became a snare to them. Folks, is that us? Is that not our culture today? Wow. As Walt says, take a look at our two political candidates. You'll get an idea as to how far the world has fallen and what we look for. We become deceived if we believe that we can serve God on our terms. When, how, and how much. Because as I said, we really want the things of this world sometimes more than we want the things of God. Um, there's nothing in Scripture that suggests that if we decide to live life on our terms, that God will accept that. I can't find it anywhere in Scripture. I've looked, can't find it. Um, you will remember that I shared with you one time the difference between a prosperity gospel and the true gospel. The prosperity gospel says that God saved me so that he could help me get what I want to have and so that he could help me do what I want to do. That's the prosperity gospel. Absolutely false. The real gospel is God saved me at his choice in his predecision, in his grace, so that I could do what he wants me to do, and I could have what he wants me to have. And nothing less. That's the true gospel. Which one do you want to settle for? I want what God wants for me to have, and I want what God wants me to do. That's my choice. That's what I want. And in fact, Jesus 624, Jesus, Jesus 624, Jesus didn't write, he wrote the entire book. <laughs> the part of Jesus' book, Matthew 624, Jesus says, here's the thing. He says, you don't have, you, you, really, there's, there's two choices here, right? He says, you cannot serve two masters. 
He says, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Those are pretty strong words. He doesn't leave a lot of gray area, does he? I want to love the true gospel. I want that one master. Now, let's be clear here, folks. You are absolutely saved only by the grace of God through faith and submission to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Amen? That is it. We are not saved by obedience to a list of rules. Hear the difference, right? But once we are saved, we are commanded by him to obey him. We are commanded by him to obey him. So hear the difference. Remember when I showed up, the, gave you the four reasons why I want to live life the way that Christ has demanded. You notice it did not say, I want to live that way so that I become uh, more valuable to him. I did not say I want to live that way so that I become more acceptable. I did not say I want to live that way so that I become more deserving of what he has for me. I don't deserve anything from him. Nothing. Notice those four reasons. Do not hear what I'm not saying, okay? So we are saved only through grace. But once we do that, we are commanded to follow him. So uh, the difference of this is the perspective from which I behave. I obey God because he saved me. I want to obey him and because he tells me to do so. No other reasons. That's it. I do not make, it, make myself worthy of my salvation. I cannot ever make myself worthy of my salvation. For as long as I live on this earth, I will not be worthy of my salvation. Did you hear that real clearly? Ever. I will never be good enough. By the grace of my Lord, I am saved. Through nothing that I did to deserve it. While I was still a sinner, he died for me. Okay. Get off my high horse on that one. This may sound a little bit tough, folks. So uh, I think we've been, let's take a look. I want to take a little bit more about the grace thing. I think we've been, um, we've really distorted grace. By accepting and living a culture of promiscuity. I want to read uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you want to open your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Sometimes I'm too lazy to type this out, so I just go and open my Bible, right? 2 Timothy, come on back here. Chapter 3. And I'm going to read the first five verses. And I want you to listen, folks, and tell me what this describes. He says, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous. Can't we stop now? Without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Um, folks, does that describe our society today? Here's the part that's really kind of disturbing. Does that, in many cases, describe the church today in America? This is humbling for me. I should go look at that list and say, how much of that is me? And go on my knees before the Father and say, I don't want that anymore. Take it from me. Because I can't do it on my own. Let me share with you a little bit more. And I'm going to actually, I actually wrote this out, so I'm going to have to read it to you. I think this is how we sometimes have a view of grace. And I thought I wanted to just encapsulate it in a, if you will, a false doctrine statement. So see what you think. So just, just kind of listen. I'm going to quote what I wrote here. 
Christians are not obligated to obey God's commands, as that would be legalism. God knows we can't obey, and so that's why he sent Jesus to die for us, because we can't obey. And because he knows we cannot keep his commands, he doesn't expect us to. We relate to God only on the basis of grace and not works at all. Assurance and certainty are synonyms. As a believer, I am certain I am saved, and I'm assured I will go to heaven when I die simply because God loves me, and he wouldn't send me to hell. Certainly not because he has any expectations of me. End of the quote. Have you heard any of that before? That sometimes can be grace a little bit distorted. The problem that I have with this view is that when I look at the whole of Scripture, I see nothing that suggests that God's able to relate to such a doctrine. Nothing. Can't find it. And if anybody of you can find it, please help me find it. I'm going to look at the whole of Scripture. Um, I said a couple weeks ago, I don't want you to be bewitched by legalism. But please also, brothers and sisters, do not be deceived by grace such that you believe you can live life completely on your own terms. John 3.36 says, John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. See, I take that when I say rejecting the Son, rejecting his word. Here's why, and this is what God showed me. How does the book of John start off? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus and His Word are not separable. So I can't say I believe in Jesus, but say I don't believe His Word. I can't say I obey Jesus, but I don't obey His Word. His Word is a revelation as to who He is. He's given it to us. So I have a choice here, folks. His, he and His Word are not separable. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 8 and 9, is even more direct. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Let me, let me say this. Um, he says here, and I quote from Thessalonians, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Brothers and sisters, I'm not telling you what to do or not to do. I'm simply telling you about the journey I'm on. And I'm compelling you to take a look at those scripture verses that I'm using today and see, what does God say to you? You know, a cool thing happened. I don't know if you're aware of this. A massive change, not in God's character as nature, but a massive change in focus happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's been a number of them, but here's one of them. In the Old Testament, God's focus was on his people Israel. It was on the nation, not on the individuals. When he was looking at his nation, his people Israel, he had no trouble sending entire families or even clans to death for not obeying him. His commitment was to his nation. Massive change happens in the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, his commitment is to the individual. His commands are to the individual. It's the exclusion of the nation. It's not about America anymore. It's to the individual. So therefore, the beauty of that is that every single one of us in this room can go directly to the Father as an individual and as his child and ask him what he has to say about anything at all. Isn't that cool? We get to do that directly now. The people of Israel could not do that in the Old Testament. They had to go through the priest. They had to go through the priest. We get to go directly to him. So his commitments and his commands are to both of us. Now, I do have to share one other thing with you. Um, Often, we take a look at the laws of the Jews, and we say, oh my God, they had to follow 613 Levitical laws. Who could ever do that? You may not realize this, but actually, most of the Jews did a pretty good job of following the laws a lot of the time. And when they didn't, they fell big time. 
But for the most part, think of it. They weren't totally destroyed all the time because they kind of tended to follow their laws. Now, to put this in perspective, when I was talking to my friend Susan Barnett, who's a, who's a lawyer, an assistant DA, um, she confirmed this. Did you know that today that you're actually under thousands of laws at the city and the state level? And if I include federal statutes, you're under tens of thousands of laws of what to do and not do. And for the most part, you're probably living under them. So I think the Jews could learn to live under 613 laws. And I believe that we can learn to live under the commandments of the New Testament. Not only that, but Jesus makes this promise. He said, abide in me, submit to me. And he says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit to actually help you do it. If you genuinely want to do it. I do not have the power to follow Jesus' commands. But submitted to him... I actually can do some things I didn't think I could do. I can stop doing some things that I didn't think I could stop doing. Um, so it's amazing how that works. Fair enough? So we've got that unique privilege to go before the Father. So as you read those verses on your own, simply say, Father, what do you have to say to your child about this? And let him speak to you. I trust he will. Now, you need to recognize that from Scripture, the Jesus who we love and praise and adore and worship is the same character who probably more than any other character in the New Testament talked about the wrath of God. Did you know that? Now why would he do a love you Jesus talk about that? Um, I, think he, I think he means what he, what he says and he says what he means. I'm going to open Matthew chapter 3 first. We're going to kind of probably, we might finish on this one, I'll see. Matthew chapter 3. And I'm going to look at verses 7 to 10. He said, but when he saw, and this is talking about John the Baptist, right? He saw the many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He says, I tell you that of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down, thrown into the fire. I mean, he warned them, right? And then I want to take a look at another one. Um, John 5, verse 22. So let's go forward to John 5, verse 22 to 29. It says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father... For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. He says, don't be amazed by this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So it's kind of interesting. I'm going to give with you, I'm going to wrap up with this. I'm going to give you what I believe are three potential signs that says I might be susceptible to the wrath of God. And I've had to deal with these. The first one is, I assume that his commitment to me obligates him to accept me and forgive me. I assume that his commitment to me 
obligates him to accept and forgive me. See, God obligates himself with his promises, but this is different than not me saying, I obligate you, God, to fulfill your promises in me. I can't obligate God for anything. He obligates himself. Only through submission can I go before an almighty God and say, Father, would you fulfill your promises in me? I cannot obligate him to do so. Fair enough? That would be pretty arrogant on my part. (laughs) Um, Second indication, maybe a warning sign. I rebel, and I think that I can repent later. In the meantime, I'll live life the way I want to. So I rebel with a plan that I'll repent later. And in the meantime, let me just live life the way I want to. But 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that I can only call Jesus Lord by the Holy Spirit. So how can I tell the Holy Spirit I don't want to live according to you and expect him (laughs) to guide me to Jesus? I can't. So for me to say, God, leave me alone, I'll live my life my way, and I'll come to you later. Oh, boy, that's shaky ground. There's probably a third uh, warning. And the third one is this, and this, again, is speaking to me. I think God will serve me on my terms, and I only need to serve him on my terms. I'll say that again. I believe that God will serve me on my terms, and... I only need to serve him on my terms. See, I think God makes it clear that those that he accepts those who eagerly and passionately wish to be his slaves. In Romans 6.18, it says that I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to righteousness. Slave is a pretty strong word, but I should be a slave. In other words, under submission to him to become a slave to righteousness. That's pretty clear to me. And in 1 Corinthians 6.20... 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says that I was bought at a price, and it says, therefore, honor God with your bodies. And I assume that means all of me. I have to desire to follow God more than I desire life itself. That's what I want. That's what I want my position to be. I want to long to obey him, and I want to belong to be, to do his will. Just because life is better, because of the four reasons I shared with you. Because I want to bring honor and glory to him. I want to learn more about him, and because he tells me to. And he says, son, I'll reward you this way. If you can learn to become a little bit more like me, he says, then I'll use you in this world. As Walt said this morning, for people to look and say, can you give me a reason for the hope you have? Can you tell me more about how God changed you? What an honor it would be to be used in someone's life like that. But I can't do it if they don't see anybody any different. So, here's, I'll give you one last final argument. A lot of people say, well, his commands are really just culturally relevant. If that's the case... Who determines which of his commands are culturally relevant and which ones are not? Who determines that? Here's the second problem I have with that. If his commands are culturally relevant, then aren't his promises as well? And who determines those? Scripture has to stand completely 100% on its own as the word of God, folks. It has to. Otherwise, if it's subject to one iota of me and my understanding as to what I want to be, and then I'm done and I grumble after that, we're doomed. So that's why I told you, don't listen to what I'm saying. Use the verses. Go into the scripture and see what he's saying to you because you have the right, you have the obligation, you have the position that allows you to go directly to the king. Don't take my word. Ask him what he has to say to you about it. So I'm going to wrap up with this. I want to read to you Matthew 7, verses 17 to 23. I'm going to end with this. Matthew 7.
Backwards, Bob, backwards. Matthew 7, 17 to 23. Likewise, um, every every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And then here comes the tough part. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Can you hear the desperation? Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons or perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Brothers and sisters, I choose joyfully to do my best at doing what Christ, in submission to him, commands me to do. And I'm trying to do that more and more with your help. I'm trying to do that. Many of you in this room have helped hold hold me accountable to that. And I know you've done that for the most part in love, which is good. Um, And although I live completely in freedom, in the freedom that is Christ... I will obey him. Because I want to be assured that on that day when I meet him face to face, I will not hear these words. Depart from me, Bob. I never knew you. 